Good morning. We welcome you to Redeemer Church and glad that you can be with us uh, for this time of worship. And if you are visiting with us, we want to give you a very special welcome. Glad that you can be uh, with us this morning. And uh, if you would uh, please text the word welcome to the number that's on the screen. That's one of the ways that we uh, uh, connect with you during the week. Uh, if you don't prefer using uh, a digital device, then there's a um, little card, a, a connection card that's in the pocket in front of you. If you'd fill that out, put it in the offering plate, then we know uh, that you are with us. We just want to be able to get to know you. We want to be able to welcome you and help you get connected more uh, here at Redeemer. And uh, another way we do that is right after the service, we have our coffee and fellowship time, and we'd love you to stay after. Just introduce yourself to a few people, and hopefully uh, you can uh, get to know a few. Um, we are in need of some volunteers uh, for our coffee time. We actually don't have some for next week. And so we'd love for you to uh, be a part of that. There's a sign-up sheet that's uh, right next to the uh, window at the kitchen. And uh, we would love to keep the coffee going, uh, and we just need some help to do that. So if you would be a part of that, we really appreciate that simple way of serving at our church. Uh, coming up tonight, we have our um, uh, Lord's Supper celebration in the evening on the month of March. And I uh, hope you can come back and join us for that time uh, of worship and time around the table and uh, we will have a special collection for the uh, building fund uh, as well today. Uh, this is our March for Missions, and uh, we have a five-minute prayer challenge. Those uh, cards have been put into the mailboxes, sent by email, and we just love for you to be a part of uh, making that commitment as a church body to be praying for each of the items that are on that list as uh, God would use uh, the answer to prayer and, and getting uh, His Word uh, to all the nations. And then uh, also just want to emphasize we have an opportunity uh, for prayer uh, right after the worship service. Our elders are going to be down uh, front here, and uh, if you have any particular need uh, of any kind, uh, they would love to be able to pray with you for that, and uh, just come up and let them know, and they'll be happy to, to pray with you. Uh, coming up this Saturday, we have our food pantry. It's going to be from 10 to 11 a.m. Uh, there's more details about that uh, in the bulletin you can read there. And then we also have a week from Saturday, our men's breakfast, which is on March 18 at 7.30. There's a sign-up on the bulletin board or, or the link. Uh, you can connect with that as well. And I uh, hope all of you men can be there for that breakfast and a great time of fellowship uh, with the gentlemen around the table. So that's all my announcements. Let's take a moment now and prepare our hearts as we come before our God. Sometimes our lives are as tumultuous as a roaring sea, and yet we come this morning to worship the God who created that sea, the God who can calm the storms in our lives, and the one who can care for us uh, right in the midst of the storm as well. And so as we come before our God, uh, we are reminded of His greatness and of the joy that we can have by hope in His truth as we look at Psalm 65 as our call to worship. By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation. 
the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the uh, farthest seas, the one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the way of the seas and roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. Well, let us lift our voices together as we declare, oh, how good it is. Please stand. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning because 
you are our God. We acknowledge that, yes, we have turned away from you in our sin, and yet by your grace you have pursued us, even by your only Son becoming flesh, living the perfect life we failed to live, dying the death we deserve, and rising again, that even on this Sunday morning we may celebrate the resurrected Christ and that we may acknowledge the wonderful life, uh, the eternal life that is our hope by faith in Him alone. And we ask that Your Spirit would guide our hearts to understand uh, all that You are doing to mold and shape us more and more in the image of Christ, and that as You work uh, in our hearts, uh, reminding us that we are here to worship You, the Lord of my salvation. Amen.
Thank you, and you may be seated. When we think about the Lord being our salvation, we have to acknowledge what have we saved from, right? We are saved uh, from the fact that we, by nature, are sinners. We, by nature, are bent against the will of the Lord, that our desire is for our own will above His will. That is our nature. And so because of that nature, right, His Spirit is at work to sanctify us, to help us to put off the old and to put on the new. And so each Sunday we come to God's Word and we are looking to His Word to uh, prick our consciences on the ways that we fall short of the Lord's glory. The law of God is a revelation of the character of God. And as He uh, highlights to us His glorious character, the shining uh, brightness of His holiness helps us to see uh, the uh, dirt of our sin. And He is here to cleanse us of our sin, to wash us clean and to make us like Jesus. And so Paul said in Romans 7, if I didn't know, uh, if the law didn't say you shall not covet, I wouldn't know what it was to covet, right? So God says this behavior, He labels it for us to say this is my will and this is against my will. So He will label for us uh, now, using the Ten Commandments, we come to this fourth commandment, uh, uh, Exodus chapter 20, uh, beginning in verse 8. Hear the word of God, and then we will recite together our confession of faith, which talks about what is required in the fourth commandment. This is God's word. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your, ma- your, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So answering this question, what is required in the fourth commandment? The fourth commandment requires of all men the sanctifying or keeping holy to God set times as he hath appointed in his word expressly one whole day in seven, which was the seventh from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ and the first day of the week ever since, and so to continue to the end of the world which is the Christian Sabbath, and in the New Testament called the Lord's Day. Well, we get to enjoy uh, the Lord's Day each week as we gather here uh, for worship. The Lord has called us to cease uh, from our work, to set aside this time to focus on the things uh, that honor Him most. Now, it is very true that there are some people who have employment that are works of mercy. We need to have hospitals open on Sunday, right? There are things like that that still are happening uh, on a Sunday that are still a work of necessity as we see them. Uh, but for the most part, uh, setting aside uh, one day in seven, as I mentioned last week, right, pastors, uh, Sunday not being their day off, right, it, it being a significant uh, work day that most of us uh, take Monday off. But, you know, when we think about uh, all the different ways in our lives that the Lord has called us to set aside that time of rest. So in whatever ways, uh, perhaps, that you cross over that line, that you do not take uh, that time, that you would be confessing that to the Lord as we go to Him in prayer.
Heavenly Father, as we come to you and we acknowledge that we do find work very important. You've given us tasks to do. And we want to labor faithfully to serve you, to provide for our families, to all the things that are necessary. But we know that though we have responsibility, you are the ultimate provider. And that you have called us to cease our work for a day. To trust that you are going to provide and that we would not be seeking after money as a goal. That it would be a tool used for advancing your kingdom and honoring you. Lord, you have also called us to labor six days in this commandment. Yes, the seventh is a day of rest, but in those other six, we are called indeed to labor. And so we know that if we are goofing off at work, that we are actually breaking the Sabbath command to labor for six days. Lord, forgive us for the multitude of sins that we have committed both in our work, our lack of work, in our rest, and in our lack of rest. Father, we pray that you would uh, turn our hearts to trust your design, that you made our bodies a particular way to function according to your law, and that we would live according to that for our greatest joy and the greatest honor to you. We pray it in Jesus' most holy name. Amen. The Lord has given to us a uh, wonderful promise of pardon in Psalm 106. It says, Nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry. For their sake he remembered his covenant and relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. Well, we rejoice together in that love and the way that is demonstrated not only in the promises of God, but also in the life of His church. And we have now the opportunity to welcome more into the life of this church. And so I want to welcome up uh, the Herwires and Hannah Camps for being received as members this morning. I forgot to grab my mic, so I have to kind of be tied to this thing right now. So we uh, are thrilled to have uh, uh, Mitchell and Megan Herwire and Hannah Camps here, and uh, you all have been such a wonderful part of this congregation, uh, and uh, we're so thrilled to be able to have you as uh, members of our church, and uh, we um, have you know, had a number of conversations about uh, different things, but uh, right now we're going to focus on the five membership vows uh, that you went over in your uh, membership class and uh, wanted to uh, take this time that you're um, re- responding to these, uh, demonstrating your faith in our great God. So here now the five questions. Do you believe the Bible consisting of the Old and New Testaments to be the Word of God and its doctrine of salvation to be the perfect and only true doctrine of salvation? And do you believe in one living and true God, in whom eternally there are three distinct persons, God the Father, uh, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, who are the same in being and equal in power and glory, and that Jesus Christ is God, the Son, come in the flesh? And do you confess that because of your sinfulness you abhor and humble yourself before God, that you repent of your sin and that you trust for salvation not in yourself, but in Jesus Christ alone. 
And do you acknowledge Jesus Christ as your sovereign Lord? And do you promise that in reliance on the grace of God, you will serve him with all that is in you, forsake the world, resist the devil, put to death your sinful deeds and desires, and lead a godly life? And do you promise to participate faithfully in this church's worship and service, to submit in the Lord to its government, and to heed its discipline, even in case you should be found delinquent in doctrine or life? Well, we have heard the testimony of our brothers, our brother and sister, sisters, almost said it right, and uh, so glad that they can be part of our church, and we uh, have the opportunity to welcome them. If you do not know them, uh, they are very special people. I know them personally, and I can tell you that, and I uh, would encourage you to invite them over, have them for a meal, uh, get to know them a little bit better, and uh, celebrate what God is doing in their lives, and let them get to know you as well. Uh, But beloved, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I welcome you to all the privileges of full communion with God's people. I charge you to continue steadfastly in the confession that you have made, humbly relying upon the grace of God through the diligent use of the means of grace, especially the word of God, the sacraments, and prayer. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we come before you and just acknowledge uh, the wonderful gift uh, that the Herwires and, and Hannah uh, are to our church and that we can be to them. We just ask that you would uh, be at work uh, in each one of their lives as they grow uh, closer to you and mature in their relationship with Christ and with those in this church as you use them to minister uh, according to their gifts and to serve as uh, missionaries to their neighbors and to enjoy uh, your grace and blessings in all the areas of their lives and that we can come around them and be Uh, instruments in your hand as well of blessing to them. Father, we just pray that all this would be to your glory, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we welcome you. Well, as we think back uh, to our own uh, partaking of... Let me move that of uh, union with uh, this church and with uh, the body of Christ. Uh, We have a lot to rejoice in, but we are called by God's grace to have one mind, and that mind is the mind of Christ our Savior. Let us stand as we sing that truth.
Please remain standing as we join our hearts together in a prayer of thanksgiving. Lord, we come before you this morning on a beautiful sunny day, and our hearts are full of gratitude. Lord, we thank you for the air that we breathe, the simple fact that we woke up today and uh, are able to come here and worship you is a blessing in and of itself and something that we take for granted week after week. And we just ask, Lord, that you would work within our minds and our hearts that the realization of all that you have given to us and the way in which you care for us and sustain us on a daily basis would be so clearly evident to us all today. Lord, we know that the workings of the devil, that he wants us to feel alone, he wants us to feel like nobody understands what we're going through, and that the world around us is what's really relevant. And Lord, we thank you that you've made Redeemer an anchor and a steady rock to fight that lie. We thank you for the way in which you use the various ministry leads, the team of individuals that we have, the countless volunteers working behind the scenes, and our pastoral staff and our elders as well, that we would be a church that would firmly seek after you, that we would seek biblical truth, that we would not find a need to twist our values, our morals, and scripture to, see, uh, to suit the needs of the world, but that we would remain faithful to you. Lord, we ask that you would be with Pastor Jeff as he brings the message today. We ask that our hearts would be open and willing to receive the truth from your scripture. And Lord, finally, we thank you so much for the financial gifts that you've given to us as a church. We ask that you would be with the deacons as they administer these funds, that we would do so faithfully, and that we would continue to seek guidance from you into how to direct our efforts to continue to grow your church, both here in Ada and abroad. All this we ask in your name. Amen.
Just one verse before we go to our Lord in our time of intercession for each other. This is from Genesis chapter 17, where God said to Abraham, and through Abraham to us, He said, And I will establish my covenant between me and you, and your offspring after you throughout their generations, for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you forever. Would you join me in prayer? Father, you spoke those words to Abraham many years before any of us even existed. And they set the pattern in your word for how you care for your people. You are God to adults. You are God to children. And the way in which you bring the gospel news of Jesus Christ is often through that family line. As parents teach their children and children hear from their parents the wonderful news that God is creator and Lord and that through Jesus Christ we can have peace with this great and powerful God. And we need that reassurance because sometimes we look around us and we don't see reasons for hope. Instead, we see disappointment and even dread. Or maybe as parents, you look at our children and we wonder what will happen to them in the future. Maybe we see something in their hearts as they grow up and we wonder, will they be able to walk in faithfulness after you? Maybe it's the general circumstances of their lives that gives us pause and doubt. And we wonder, will our children be able to serve you freely and openly? Maybe it's an illness as some of us are facing. And we wonder whether God's words to Abraham hold true for us, that you will be God to us forever. Because these doubts are naturally part of our lives, it is good for us to be here in your presence this morning to know that you are real, to know that your word is true, that your promises are yes and amen in Jesus Christ, that as you said to Joshua, there is not one word that God has ever spoken that has failed to come to pass. You are a God who's true. And we rejoice in that truth this morning. We are thankful how that truth applies to Mitch and to Megan and Hannah who have had parents and those who have gone before them, trained them to love you, who have been prayed for many times over the years. Maybe their parents have watched them go this way and that way in their life. There have been times of struggle most certainly and Lord, you have been good to them at every moment. You have cared for them and loved them. And then in a morning like this, to have them stand before you and say, yes, I acknowledge that you are God above all. I see that I'm a sinner, that I need the grace of Jesus Christ, and I want to commit my life to following after you and to love the people of God. What a joyous morning. And we give thanks to you, we rejoice in it, because you have heard and answered many prayers, and you have kept the promise that you spoke to Abraham. We are overjoyed, Lord, and it fills us with hope as we look around ourselves at the world in which we live, and we might wonder how is it that we might be effective in bringing that good news to others, and then we see you, we watch you at work in the lives of those in this church. Maybe it's our children, maybe it's a different church member, maybe it's someone who's coming to faith in Jesus Christ. We watch you work, and we say, yes, Lord. Your promises are true. We can see them. We believe them. You are great. 
And we pray for those this morning in our congregation, some of whom we will name, many others we will not, for whom these promises need to be precious and true. Maybe it's a deep hurt that we're struggling with. Maybe it's a fear, a doubt. Maybe it's something that we have done or something that's been done to us. Lord, the promise that Abraham received is a promise for us as well, that you are God to us and our children. And we pray for those things that are too deep in our hearts and too difficult to even talk about openly, that you would comfort us there as well. That you would give us this great news, as Jesus said, he has not abandoned us, he has not left us. Know what God said to Abraham, he also says to us today. We pray for those who have asked for prayer. We pray for Aaron as he faces surgery. We ask, Lord, that you would be near him and that you would give him health and recovery. Thank you for our dear brother, and we pray that this time would be a time in which your kindness is shown to him very clearly. We pray for Louise Kampheis. Lord, we pray for your presence with her as well. Through various ailments, Lord, you have shown yourself to be faithful to her, and we pray that you would give relief from her pain. We pray for Richard Bauma. Lord, we rejoice in how effective his stem cell transplant has gone, and we pray that you would keep him from any further illness, that soon he'd be back with us, worshiping here with each other. Thank you, Lord, that he can be with us this morning, joining us over the Internet. We pray for Mickey Kite. Lord, that promise to be near us is so important in the latter days of life, and we pray that you would, that you would provide and care. We pray for Zach Francois. Lord, earlier this week when I talked to him, it was so clear that he looks at his surroundings, as many do, and he wonders, where are you, God? If you are God, how can this culture that he is a part of in Haiti be so disrupted by the gangs that hurt each other, kidnap people, extort, rob, steal? We ask, Lord, that you would protect our dear brother as well as his, his mom and his brother and that you would bring peace to that nation and that you would open doors that those who are hurt can receive help. We pray for the ministries we support, Lord, that through the gospel agency, you would see, you would bring great transma- uh, trans- uh, transformation to that culture. We pray for Clarice. Lord, she's received news. And we pray that you would comfort her heart as she considers what might lie next for her. Lord, may she know your presence very closely. We pray for Gail Stahl, Lord. Again, we ask for your comfort and your care for her as well. Thank you, Lord, for what you have already done for her. And we pray that she would know your presence and your help in the future. And then we pray for Steve Platt as well. Thank you for bringing him through his surgery this past week. And now we pray for continued recovery and help for him. Lord, again... We have these precious promises to cling to, and we're grateful that we do. And we pray now in a moment as we hear your word, read, explained. Here also we need the promise that you've given in your word. That when the word of God is preached, it's not simply some guy explaining to us words in a book. 
But you said to your disciples that when they hear the disciples, they are hearing God. And not in every respect, but in as much as they were proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And so we need your help so that that is what we hear. But then we also need your help to be open to it. Because we've heard all kinds of lies in our lives. Things that are going to make life better. That we're going to feel more relief, greater joy. And time after time we've been disappointed. We pray that when we turn to Jesus Christ and know Him, that instead of that deep disappointment that accompanies so much of life, we would instead find joy and peace. Lord, You're able to give it because You are God Almighty, and we pray that You would. For we come in Jesus' name. Amen. As you can see, if you took a bulletin when you came in, this morning we're looking at John chapter 6. If you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to turn there. If you don't, of course, it will be on the screen behind me. This is such an interesting passage. Um, (laughs) I'm delighted by it. I hope you can tell that. It kind of comes in an almost surprising fashion. And I'm going to explain to you why it's so surprising. Um, You know, many of you know that I was on vacation last week. And I have to tell you that being in southwest Florida, where it was always between 82 and 89, sunny every day, sitting on the beach under an umbrella, reading a book, it wasn't bad. (laughs) And somebody texted me while I was there and asked, well, how are the divorce doing? You know, kind of concerning you to come back. And what I said was, well, of course, because when you find a place where you can belong, a good church, you just want to keep going back. And so you're not in southwest Florida this morning, that's true, but in my humble estimation, I'm in a better place, because you're all here. And I'm excited to share this word of God with you this morning, because I believe that this is exactly what God, who knows you better than anyone else can, has for you. John chapter 6, beginning at verse 16, just a few verses, it says, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. And when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea, coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, "'It is I, do not be afraid.'" Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. This is the word of God. One of the delights of vacation for me is reading books I wouldn't ordinarily read. And one of the wonderful things I discovered in the condo we were staying was a book called We Die Alone. And it wasn't totally unknown to me. I'd read this book about 10 years ago, but I was glad to reread it because I'd forgotten a lot of the detail. It is a story of four Norwegian commandos in March of 1943 who traveled from the northernest parts 
of Great Britain to try to stir up rebellion among the Norwegians. And they travel over a thousand miles in a small fishing boat, four commandos, and as they're about to land, as they're about to land in Norway, somehow the Nazis discover that they are there. They start shooting at the boats, and all but one of the commandos is either killed or captured. And his name was Jan Balsrud. And the rest of the book is a fascinating account, almost unbelievable, about how this man stays alive and eventually makes his way to freedom. But now let me explain to you a particular part of that story that I think you can sympathize with. At a certain point, John, John Balsrud is trying to connect with the underground movements in Norway to try to make his way to freedom. And he had been told that a certain, certain shopkeeper was a safe person to go to and disclose that he needed help. So he goes to the shopkeeper and he talks to the shopkeeper and he discovers of all horrible things that the shopkeeper he thought he was talking to had actually died last year. And of all the crazy things, the new shopkeeper had exactly the same name. And John, by this time, had laid out his predicament, and the shopkeeper is faced with a terrible choice. How does the shopkeeper know that John is actually a fellow Norwegian trying to help? Or is John a Nazi spy sent to discover who is sympathetic to their overthrow? And the book describes a night in which the shopkeeper mulls it over and over and over. What should I do? Should I turn him in? Should I not turn him in? And in the morning, the shopkeeper calls the local Nazi installment soldiers and tells them that John has come. Now the reason I find that so fascinating is because the book discloses the reason why the shopkeeper calls the Nazis is because he's afraid. And as I was reading that, sitting on a beach in southwest Florida, 85 degrees, you might say that fear was the furthest thing from my mind, but when I read that account, I thought, no, it's not really. I understand that fear. If not that magnitude or that situation, the power of fear. In fact, I would tell you this morning that one of the most powerful motivators that exists in our world is the power of fear. It can move you to do things that ordinary you would never consider doing, like this shopkeeper turning in John Ballsrood. Well, I can just ask you at the beginning of the sermon this morning, how much does fear motivate you? Because that's the question that is going to be asked in our six or so verses from John chapter 6. And Jesus gives a powerful answer to that question of fear. And this morning I want to explain to you that Jesus has an antidote to that fear. Here it is. Do you want to hear it? It's this simple. Jesus is greater than the fear. 
Jesus is greater than the fear. In fact, what he's going to say to his disciples is that Jesus has far more power than they could even imagine. Or let me put it in terms for you. Jesus has more power even than you imagine. And because he has more power than you imagine, there is no reason to fear. And I want to explain that to you this morning. Just two ideas. It's going to be simple for, excuse me, for you children who are taking notes because it's just two words. The first word to write down is the storm. The second is the Savior. Storm and Savior. And I want to begin with the storm. We didn't read the previous section here in John chapter 6. That was last week, Sunday morning. But I'll just give you a quick review because some of you probably were not here. At the beginning of John chapter 6, all these people are coming out to listen to Jesus preach and they come up with a predicament. It's time to eat and there's no food. The disciples come to Jesus and they say, there's no food. It's not possible to feed all these people. There are 5,000 people to feed. Who in the world can supply all that food? And Jesus does an amazing miracle. He has a few loaves of bread, a few fishes, and he increases exponentially that food and everyone eats. Now that's amazing. I hope when you heard that last Sunday, you went, wow, that's incredible. Because the people in the story certainly had that response. They're like, this is incredible. In fact, I want to show you how incredible they believed it to be. Look at the end of the last section. Verse 15 says, perceiving then that they were about to take him, that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Why did Jesus go to the mountain and leave his disciples alone? Because the people were so impressed, they wanted to take him against his own will and make him king. Now think about the utilitarian purpose for their desire. They were in a country in which they were dominated by the Romans. They said, here's a man who can take a few loaves and some fish, multiply it, feed all these 5,000. This is a man who needs a platform. This is a man who needs to be promoted. He's a wandering rabbi preaching out here in the mountains. This isn't the best use for Jesus. Jesus needs to be in a spot where he can do some real good. Let's make him king. And he can give us the freedom that we really need. Well, that introduces us to the storm that comes in verses 16 through 21. Here are these disciples. They get into a boat. They're going to cross the sea. And as they are three or four miles across the sea, there is a storm that arises. Now, if you know anything about the Sea of Galilee, you know that these storms arise. An east wind comes over the mountains, settles down into the lower area where the Sea of Galilee is, and it stirs up the water. It's almost like the mountains sort of channel the force of the wind. And where there wasn't a storm, all of a sudden there's a great storm. And that's what the disciples were experiencing. If you have an artist in your family, someone who appreciates art, you will know there's a famous painting by Rembrandt called, appropriately, Christ in the Storm on the Sea of Galilee. How creative is that? And when you look at that portrayal, you'll notice a few historical inaccuracies. Looks almost like these sailors lived when Rembrandt did. But what was really fascinating about the picture, the painting, is you can see the fear on the faces of the mariners. 
You can see they're struggling. The boat is kind of lifted up. The waves are pushing against it, almost flipping the boat over. They're struggling to pull in the sail, and their faces are overcome by fear. That's part of why Rembrandt was so great. The ability to capture the emotion, the drama of the scene. They're struggling to maintain control of the ship as the wind and the slaves slam against the boat. And it is not wrong for you this morning to think that's what they were experiencing, a great deal of fear. And it was fear not only of the situation, but the Israelites had a built-in fear of the sea. Let me give you a couple of examples. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, talking about the creation of the world, it says, And there over the face of the waters, the earth without form and void, there was darkness over the face of the deep waters. That is where God brought the creation from. In other words, he created it out of nothing, but as he fashions the creation, there is a sense of unorderliness. There is a sense that creation needs to be brought together. And the way that it's described is like a sea that is roaring and God brings that together in a way that reflects the beauty of creation. And that motif is found often in the Old Testament. In the book of Job, for example, it talks about the power of the Creator God by describing it as walking over the surface of a sea that is disturbed. Now here is where I can ask you the question you've already been considering. Whether you've ever been in a scary situation like this. My siblings will laugh because the scariest situation I had as a child was being at a parade in a small town And a clown came over and wanted to give me candy. I had watched, some of you will appreciate this, I had watched Little House on the Prairie previously. And I don't know if you've watched this, but there is one episode in which a clown does really horrific things to children. And Little House on the Prairie. Strange. I had viewed that at home, and now in this parade... Up comes a clown, and I ran, and I hid myself behind a house. And my parents came like, what are you so afraid of? That fear was palatable. Even to this day, I can feel that fear. I'm sure there are similar fears that are known to you. Maybe it's a fear of the unknown. Don't know what the future looks like. It's a fear that your job is going to end. It's a fear of what's happening in your family. Maybe it's a fear of what's happening in your own soul. There are all sorts of fears that you might face. A little later on, when I was a young teenager, I was visiting my uncle and aunt in a small town, and there's a tornado that came through that town. I remember sitting in the basement, hearing the sirens roar, and the tornado clipped the southern part of town. And the amount of fear I saw, even in my uncle and aunt, it was amazing. Obviously, it was a power beyond their ability to control. These are frightening things, horrible things, amazingly powerful things. And I understand if you would fear them or other things like them in your life. 
But if you're not reading the story carefully, you might assume that's why the disciples are afraid. But it's not. The disciples are not afraid because there's a tornado or there is a storm on the sea. No, when you look at this chapter, verse 19, it describes why they were afraid. It says, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. I'm not suggesting this morning the storm wasn't a problem. It certainly was. But John is careful to say that wasn't the reason for their fear. They looked over the storm, over the sea, and what did they see? It was Jesus walking on the surface of the water coming toward them. Now I get floating above the water. (laughs) I floated in the ocean last week, and it was great. That's not what Jesus is doing. He's not floating in the water. He is walking above the surface of a storm. This is Jesus demonstrating that not even a storm has power over him. Let me just run a little thought experiment with you as you consider these verses. Compare the multiplication of the bread and the fish with this event. In the previous section, everyone was impressed by turning a little bit into a lot. That impressed them enough they wanted to make him king. Throw off those Romans. Make Jesus king. But in comparison with that story, what we find in these verses is a substantial elevation. Because this is not Jesus making a little into a lot. This is Jesus proclaiming that he is nothing less than the God of the universe. Back in Genesis 1, when it talks about the world being without form and void and darkness over the face of the deep waters, it is God, it says, who is above them. And the Spirit of God hovered over the face of those waters. And in Job 9, verse 8, that I already alluded to, when Job was in his deepest angst, he says, God alone treads on the waves of the sea. Here is Jesus treading above the waves of the sea. And what brought fear into the hearts of the disciples was it not occasioned by the storm. It was not the cause of their fear alone. The cause of their fear was the realization that Jesus had the power of God himself. This is God. That's what his walking proclaimed. Or if I could put the message of this passage compared with the previous In the previous passage, Jesus exhibited a power they knew what to do with. (laughs) Make him king. Now Jesus is exhibiting a power that is way beyond what they can believe. It is not just that they want to make him king. What they see is that Jesus is king. Not just over some bread and some fish. Over the winds and the waves, over all creation. He doesn't want to be king over just a strip of land in the Middle East. He wants to be king over every single thing. Even the winds and the waves, all creation are under his control. 
It's like asking you this question. Have you ever been in the presence of someone great and not realized it until he was right there? There's this funny story about Keanu Reeves, the actor. He went to one of the openings for one of his films and he came on a bus and he stood by the front door and the doorman wouldn't let him in. And it wasn't until the showing began and everybody asked, well, where's Keanu? That somebody went out to the front and the doorman is preventing him from coming in. Can you imagine the moment at which that doorman thinks to himself, oh no, I'm keeping the main attraction from coming in. There's a moment of realization, a flip. There's a sense that I'm in the presence of someone great and I didn't realize it. That is only a minor example of what the disciples experience in this passage. They're in the presence of Almighty God. And they are afraid. Which makes the words of Jesus in response to them the perfect thing for them and for us. Beyond the storm, there is the Savior. Jesus says to them, it is I, do not be afraid. I said that very calmly. As you can tell, my voice is not strong this morning. I want to say it more like this. It is I, fear not. Because I'm confident that is the tone. In fact, if I can be a little critical of our translation here, it is not Jesus just identifying himself. It is not just, hey, it's me. Don't be afraid. Jesus is literally saying, I am, do not fear. Now, maybe that doesn't make a lot of sense to you, but let me explain to you how significant that is. These I am statements show up all over the book of John. Already in chapter 4, verse 26, a number of chapters before, the woman at the well says she is looking for the Messiah who is to come. Hey, when's the Messiah going to come? And Jesus turns to her and says, I am. Could you imagine that moment? Later on in this chapter, in chapter 6, verse 35, Jesus will say, I am the bread of life. And in various other places in the Gospel of John, this I am formula is used. It is used for this important reason. In the Old Testament, when God Almighty meant to speak to his people to reveal to them who he is, what he says to them is, I am. Which is a different way of saying that I am God. I'm the self-existent one. I don't rely on anyone else. I alone am God. There's no one beside me. I have no comparison with any other. I need no affirmation. I need no support. I am the self-existent one. I am God. So that every time Jesus says in the Gospel of John, I am the Old Testament aware people think to themselves, This is a man, this is Jesus claiming to be the God of our fathers, Almighty God, come in the flesh. And as amazing as that is, Jesus claiming to be Almighty God coming in the flesh, that's not the really surprising thing yet. (laughs) And that's why I'm so delighted by this passage. To see God Almighty walking on the waves of the sea to them is not the surprising thing. It causes fear, but it is not the surprising thing. The surprising thing is that Jesus adds what is just two words, do not 
fear. That's the good news. To imagine that the God of the universe is walking across the waves to his disciples. That's amazing. It's mind-blowing. But it's also intimidating. Because the God of the universe is walking across the waves to see his disciples. If the power they observed in the last, pa- at last passage is truly impressive, here it is intimidating. And the more people come to see who Jesus is, the more Jesus needs to reassure them, do not fear, I'm with you. No need to fear. In fact, that's, that phrase, do not fear, comes up over and over and over in the Gospels until the last thing that Matthew records Jesus saying to his disciples before he ascends is, there's no reason to fear, I'm going to be with you to the end of the age. Because the presence of God often brings great fear into our lives. If that's a little difficult for you to understand, I have to give you a formula. (laughs) I'm going to reduce it to a formula, then I'm going to explain it. Here's the formula why you might fear God. He is all power. That's the first thing. This is not your next door neighbor who sees you through the window in your bathrobe in the morning. That's embarrassing. That's not God. God sees you at every moment and he is awesome power. He is the power of the universe. There's no one like him. The second thing the Bible says about this God is he is absolutely holy. Just review your morning. Maybe you want to review your car ride here. Did you have a little snippeting snippeting time with your husband or your wife? (laughs) Did one of your children criticize one of their siblings? Did you reserve in your heart, as we talked about in the fourth commandment, the sense, why am I coming to church? It's kind of boring. I don't know. Do we really need to go? Look at it. It's going to be 50 today. Don't actually look. (laughs) And then it's going to be a wintry mix tonight. Was there a little part of you that thought, man, 50 degrees, that's my cutoff point for riding my motorcycle. I could be out going down the roads. Oh, my word. Think of the deeper sins that exist in your life. Your covetousness, your anger, your frustration, your greed, your lust. If the first great truth is God is God over all, he's all-powerful, the second great truth of the Bible is absolutely, unwaveringly holy. There's no one like him. He doesn't wink at sin, not even once. And he's not your grandpa who says, well, it's not that big a deal. God has an absolute standard. The third part of the formula beyond his power and his holiness is this. You're a sinner. (laughs) I mean, it's an ugly truth, but I've got to tell you the truth. All those things that I named about your sin, they're true and a whole bunch of others. I mean, be honest. John says... In his epistle, we should be honest about our sin. Don't pretend like God doesn't see it. Obviously, he sees your sin. He knows it. And because you know his power, you're amazed at his power, you're amazed at your holiness, you can even say you're amazed at your sin. Therefore, one plus two plus three, well, one, then two, then three, I'm not going to add them, leads to four, and the fourth is this. 
We're afraid. We fear. Because this God knows everything. And I'm standing before His face. Sunday mornings, you have this great thing called the boiler room. It goes back to Spurgeon many years ago. People get together in my office. We pray for the service. The thing that I really thought about this morning was impresses God with the greatness of who you are. So that we would also understand the reason why Jesus is so necessary. Because in the story, that four-step formula that I told you is fundamentally changed. You should be amazed at God's power. It's worth standing in amazement at. I mean, over this past winter, I stood at the edge of the Grand Canyon. I still can't say that without becoming emotional. It is so impressive. And last week at this time, I was looking out over the Gulf of Mexico. I mean, nothing's more impressive than looking at water that goes on forever. God is a God of power. You should be amazed that God is a God of holiness. He is. You should be amazed at your own sin. It's impressive how much it clings to your soul. But then to that one, two, and three, there's a new four in this passage. And here's what I want you to hear. You should know that Jesus of power and holiness takes your sin upon himself. And therefore you do not need to fear. If I can just put it in general terms like this, I'm afraid to tell you, and I hope this does come as a surprise to you. Maybe not, but I'll say it anyway. Often the church, at least certain churches, specialize in fear. That is, we talk a lot about the commandments of God, the rules of God, because we want people to get in line. The commandments are read not to lead us to the grace of Christ, but to point out to you, you're a miserable person. (laughs) Which means you need a lot of help. Keep coming back! But that is not what the gospel leads us to. We are called to follow after our God, but not out of fear. It's out of love. When I open this sermon by saying one of the greatest motivations that exists in life is fear, I was telling you the truth. But I've got to tell you one more thing. The greatest motivation, greater than fear, is love. So that when you read this passage, what I want you to hear in the words of Jesus where he says to his disciples, it's me, I am. Do not fear is more than a proclamation of sterile theological truth. It is the whisper of love. Saying to his disciples as well as you this morning, there is no reason to fear because of the God of the universe has come to you in Jesus Christ and he has come to care for you. And whatever the storm of life is, whether it is literally the storm the disciples are experiencing, all those other examples of storm that I raised, it could be the deepest kind of storm anyone has ever known, that storm pales in comparison with the awesomeness of God Himself 
And in Jesus Christ, the greatness of that God comes to you in love to say there is no reason to fear. And that's the good news that comes to you this morning. Amen. Father, you've been at work here this morning. We're thankful for that. We're even more thankful there's no reason to bow our heads in shame and in guilt. Because if we're believers in Jesus Christ, what causes that guilt and that shame are taken away by our Savior. And we look forward in weeks that follow to hear more about who Jesus is. As he repeats even next week, I'm the bread of life. I'm the gate. I'm the good shepherd. Lord, all of those things are meant to reassure us that there is no reason to fear. It is Jesus drawing his disciples and us to himself. And I would pray for each person who hears this word, whether they're here this morning with us in this room or they're joining us over the internet, that your spirit would do a mighty work, that he would glorify Jesus Christ. For it is in his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing with conviction, all hail the power of Jesus' name.
after the blessing and the song we're about to sing, um, I'll be at the back. I'm going to ask our new members to come with me to the back before everybody else leaves so that you can uh, meet them and encourage them and be thankful for them. Um, as was also announced before the service started, there will be some elders in the front up in this corner here who will be there for prayer after the service. I know Kirk is one of them, so if you wouldn't mind just going over there, Kirk, so they know who you are. And there will be another elder joining. Thankfully, I'm not in charge of that schedule. So if you would like to go there and pray with them, they'd love to do that. We want to show that we care for you and love you as shepherds of the church, and that's one way to do it. And then there will also be Sunday school classes after the service, including sermon discussion in this room at about quarter after. So receive this blessing from your Lord. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forevermore, go in his peace. Amen.